I realized when I got here that I had chosen the same shirt as I had for the video last week. I have changed since then. Uh, one man asked if I washed it. The answer to that is no, of course, but uh, I have been washed. Um, just a little recap of where we are. We're looking at Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus and probably the other churches in Asia Minor. Um, and specifically, this letter is addressing recent converts, Gentile converts to Christianity, who are now being taught how to live in a completely different way than they had before. And the first half of the letter paints this incredible picture of the new life available to us in Jesus, available to us not in the future, but right now when we cross that line of faith and come to know the Lord. And, the, and then the second half of the letter is talking to us about the, the, the practical application. It begins the specific instructions on how to live as people made new in Christ. So last week we left off discussing this idea that, that people are watching us and deciding something about God. So this week as we pick up in that first chap, part of chapter 5, we'll, we'll continue this discussion of how to live a life worthy of our calling so that when people watch us and decide something about God, they're deciding something that's true. So we're going to take these verses in four parts, similar to last week, and then we'll conclude just before that bit about husbands uh, and wives, and good luck to my friend Zach with that. Um, the four chunks that we're going to be looking at, I've broken down as follows. Walking in darkness, walking in light, walking in wisdom, and then finally walking in the spirit. And I think, I think all of these sections are pointing back to that idea that, that we are God's plan A. Paul tells us how to walk in these verses, but, but understanding why we walk this way is incredibly important to sustaining our effort. We, we need to know what's at stake. We need to know that we're God's plan A because we, we need to behave like the people we've become in Christ, not just for our own sakes, but because our lives and how we live them will have a profound impact on all of the people God has given us to love. When we choose to walk like children of light, we're fighting for each other. We're fighting for our friends and our loved ones who don't yet know the peace and the gift that it is to call the Almighty their friend. So we pick up here where last week Paul left us with this beautiful charge to, to walk in love, both as a conclusion to the previous section and a bridge into this one. So, um, and then he follows this with a description, much like the middle of chapter four, of, of what it was like to walk in darkness. And, and implicit in this description is Paul's plea, his urging, his urging to the church and the people in it to live as the people we are now. Because remember, we took our vows, we're sealed in the spirit, but but we still have to continue every day to, to do the work of being faithful so that our lives and our churches are attractive, are an invitation to the people God misses most. So uh, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to start there in verse 1. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love just as Christ, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words, 
For because of such things, the wrath of God comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. I actually, I have a hard time sometimes reading the epistles, the letters to the churches in the New Testament, because the, the language can be so lofty, um, so, so flowery, so churchy, that, that, I, that I don't really understand the meaning of it, or I miss the meaning because I've kind of tuned it out. And that's a shame because the Bible says some crazy stuff. Don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. Why not? Presumably by that point, the goat has no objections, right? Yeah. But, the, my husband and I were just talking about this. There's a passage in, in 2 Kings where um, this group of uh, like boys, hooligans, come, they gang up on Elisha and they call him Baldy. It actually specifies that in the text. They call him Baldy. And, and so he turns around and he curses them. And then two bears come out of the woods and attack the boys. I just want like a little more information on why that's okay. There's crazy <laughs> stuff in there. This world, it is, there is. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just saying that if you call it boring, you might be like skimming the chapter headings. So, so Paul gives us an incredibly important motivation for maintaining our moral purity here. And if you're not paying attention, you can miss it. He says, you can be sure that no immoral, impure, greedy person has any inheritance in the kingdom of God because such a person is an idolater. And because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. This should make all of our palms sweaty, right? Because who among us hasn't been immoral, impure, or greedy? And, and, and I'm not talking about big ticket items here. God does not grade sin on a curve. So, so this applies to all of us. So if you think it's irrelevant for you, let me ask you some questions. Have you ever given someone like the double barrel on 436 just because they merged in front of you? That's immoral. Have you ever uh, let your dog poop in your neighbor's yard and not picked it up? That's impure. <laughs> have, you, have you ever uh, went to put a dirty dish in the dishwasher and then you open it up and all the dishes are clean, but instead of putting them away, you just put your dirty dish in there and run the whole thing again? Have, have you ever dug all the cookie dough bits out of the Ben and Jerry's? That's greedy. It's greed. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to terrify all of us. He's, he's not saying, he's not going so far to say, that this person has sinned their way out of the kingdom. He's not saying that, that believers who have a moment of weakness lose their inheritance, but he's saying that, that this person, a person who has given themselves fully to their idols, they don't want to change, they, they've accepted their sin, they don't care how their behavior hurts other people, this person shows themselves to already be excluded from the transforming work of God, even if they claim to be a follower of Jesus. He's saying this behavior could be, could be an indication of where your loyalty really lies. He says such a person is an idolater. In, in ancient Ephesus, idol worship would have been incredibly commonplace. So, so it would have been difficult for those early converts to kind of tease out what was pagan superstition and what was Christianity. It would have been a constant temptation. And, and actually very easy for them to start to combine pieces of their new religion with their old one. Paul, Paul writes to Timothy, this isn't the only letter we have to the Ephesians. Paul writes to Timothy when he's ministering at Ephesus and he says, Stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. The, the, the pagan religious beliefs and practices here, most notably the worship of Artemis, would have been intertwined with life and culture, not just religion. So these early Christians, even well-meaning, faithful Christians, could get caught up in this temptation of combining pieces of the worship of Artemis with the worship of Yahweh. There's, there's, there's evidence of this happening. 
certain groups in Ephesus, in Ephesus were conferring um, an, an almost divine status on Eve because Artemis was also called the mother of all living. So it would be really easy for them to start to, to, to take the, the qualities of Artemis and put them onto Eve in that way, this, this practice of kind of mashing together two religions uh, into one new one is called syncretism. It would pave the way for the Christian Gnostics and it would be a huge threat to Orthodox Christianity in the second and third centuries. But, but I don't think syncretism was just a, 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 a trap for the, for the early church. I think that one of the biggest um, obstacles, one of the biggest threats to Christianity in the West today is what I would call almost Christianity. Almost Christianity is this subtle form of syncretism that combines all the good parts about Jesus, the love, the, the, the grace, the salvation, but then attributes to him qualities that the scriptures simply do not support. Almost Christianity is some combination of reality and fantasy that, pro- that promises us the results that we want. When I was uh, 11, we moved um, out of the city of Pittsburgh onto a a farm in rural Chippewa, Pennsylvania, and um, we moved into a chicken coop, Uh, albeit a luxurious two-story chicken coop, but it had been a chicken coop just months earlier. And so uh, my brother and I, uh, there there weren't many other people on the farm. Um, It was mostly livestock and horses, a couple really friendly donkeys named Butch and Cassidy. And my... (laughs) Uh, you can only, and you can only be a kid so long, uh, a new kid on a farm for so long before you start to wonder if certain animals will let you ride them. And my brother started to explore this possibility with Butch the donkey. And to, to help with this experiment, he, he made, he constructed this, this tool um, that consisted of a, a stick with a carrot tied to the end of it, straight Bugs Bunny style. And because he is a generous brother, he let me have the first ride. So uh, there I am, 11 years old, astride Butch the Wild Donkey, no saddle with not but a carrot on the end of a stick in my hand. And uh, Jason kind of backs up a pace and takes all the whole scene in and with this kind of satisfied grin says, this is going to work. It didn't. Uh, unless by working you mean Jason got impatient and smacked the donkey's butt and he took off up a hill and threw me into a thorn bush, in which case it worked magically. It, it didn't work. It didn't work, and, 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 and this was some combination of our poor understanding of farm animals and, and a strong belief in the tactics we learned from Looney Tunes. He had no good reason to believe that this was going to work. He had reasons, sure, but none of them were good. When we combine either willingly or just as, as a result of failing to apply our wisdom, when we combine what is true with what we only hope is true, we're holding carrots on sticks. We're, we're thinking wishfully and not wisely. We're holding carrots on sticks and, and we don't understand why we're not moving in the direction that we think we should be. The religion of almost Christianity is tempting because it promises to give us exactly what we want on the timeline we want it, in the way that we want it, and we barely cast a glance backward to see if God is chasing us, let alone leading us. But God won't be tricked into blessing a plan that isn't really his. Almost Christianity takes the idols that our culture lives for, emotional love, beauty, wealth, ease and comfort and, and, and combines these with a faith in Jesus. And what we get is a Jesus who urges us to follow our hearts no matter what the cost to ourselves or other people. A Jesus who, who must want us to be comfortable because, hey, doesn't he have plans to prosper us and not to harm us? 
a Jesus who wants us to be rich and fat and happy. We have a whole generation of women who believe that, that all of their problems are going to be solved by true love's kiss. We are deceived by empty words when we take our God, creator of heaven and earth, maker of the cosmos, and reduce him to nothing more than a fairy godmother, to a crooked politician who is who is giving us favors in exchange for our devotion. I'm not saying God wants you to be miserable. He doesn't. But if you believe Jesus is who he said he was, you know that he's not going to give you up to the enemy without a fight. He's going to fight for you. And sometimes he fights through consequences. He will allow consequences. Not because he wants to see you suffer, but, but because if you're like me, suffering is sometimes the only tonic strong enough to drive me away from the things that are killing me. If pain is what separates us from our idols, pushes us away from the things that we give our lives to that don't give us life back, then that pain is not God's fury, it's his grace. Paul's strong message of motivation here is that when, when we continue in our idolatry, whatever that looks like, without repentance, without remorse, without the desire or effort to change, we need to consider if we're showing ourselves to be outside of God's kingdom and his inheritance. And we hate this, don't we? As Western Christians, nothing seems so unpalatable to me, to us, than the idea that someone could go to hell but, but Paul is giving us this clear warning that judgment is a real event. For because of such things, God's wrath comes. There will be a real moment when every single one of us stands before God to give an account of every thought and every word and every deed that is not a possible but a certain future. For every one of God's created human beings, Matthew 12, 36, I tell you the truth, Everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. Paul is telling us, he's telling us to, to forsake anything that has usurped the rightful place of God in our lives because God, who loves us too much to, to force us into loving him back because that God, in the end, will give us what we want most, even if what we want most will be the death of us. Again, I'm not trying to scare anybody. If you're here and you're, and you're now like, well, am I saved? Am I an idolater? Am I out of the kingdom? I have good and bad news for you. The good news is this, you're in. If you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ and you're doing everything you understand to live for him, you're in. Even when you mess up, you're still in. Here's the bad news. There are people who still aren't. So I'm not asking you to fight temptation like your life depended on it. I'm asking you to fight temptation like theirs does. I'm speaking to those of us who, who have our ticket punched, but we're not always living like it, because if we think about it, we don't really think it matters. It matters. We have to know what's at stake here. God's wrath isn't meant for his children, so, so we can look at the coming judgment with joy in the knowledge that because of Jesus, the judge will rule in our favor. But we should also look on the coming judgment with great sorrow for every single person who is still in the dark. Because our God is a God of justice, and he won't bend his own rules. Because of the deeds of darkness, God's wrath comes. Because of the deeds of darkness, God's wrath must be satisfied. 
but he would choose to satisfy it in himself, in his wounds, if we would choose him. So what am I telling you? I'm, t I'm telling you to fight for each other. Fight for each other, fight for each other's children, for each other's marriages, fight for each other in your holiness by the way you live because God's judgment will come and who among us could live with ourselves if we knew that we could have helped someone, anyone, to find joy on that day who instead will find despair. Fight for your holiness like someone else's life depends on it because it might. One last note on that, and then we can all move on to something less depressing. Uh, if you're here, and after hearing this, you're now actually unsure where your loyalty lies. And maybe you've prayed a prayer, maybe you've come to church, but you're stuck in some sins and you're not really trying to change and you're wondering what that means. Listen, that was my life. That was my life for years. And, and, and what I want to say to you this morning is don't live in fear that you don't have to. Because one of two things is happening. Either the Holy Spirit is, is, is trying to convince you by this discomfort um, that, that there's something in your life he wants you to, to put off, something he wants you to get rid of. And if that's the case, great. That's a really good thing. Or it's perhaps possible that you haven't yet crossed the line of faith. And if that's the case, then great. That's a good thing because there's an opportunity to do that every single day. It's okay, you shouldn't be embarrassed about that because you know what, the, the fact that you even care about it is an indication of the work of the Spirit at work in your life. So don't live in fear if you don't have to. There's nothing embarrassing about it. Take the step again even. If, if, if your daughter, if your little girl came up to you and said, Daddy, I decided today that I wanna be your daughter. Even though you know she's your daughter, even though she never stopped being your daughter, what father wouldn't delight in that declaration of love? Don't live in fear if you don't have to. Do whatever you need to do today to embrace Jesus and to gain the, the assurance of your salvation. Be sure. We're moving on. Gosh, this sermon is like the Sarah McLaughlin pet rescue commercial of sermons. It's just all puppies in cages and sad piano music. <laughs> Let's talk about the good news. Let's go there. That's good. Uh, for you were once in darkness... But now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. And everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Paul here is, he's reminding these Christians of the beauty of their own conversion. He's saying, remember, you remember what it was like to live in darkness. You remember what it was like to, to always be worried about being found out. You remember what it was like to lead a double life. You remember what it was like to be all caught up in, in, in trivialities and worthless side issues. And you remember what it was like to wake up as if from a bad dream, as if from death, into the light of Christ. You remember what it was like to receive the gift of new life. So live according to that life. And, and, and actually, he's not just saying that you're walking in the light. He's saying that you actually are light. You're not just being good. You are good. You're good now. 
live as children of light who bring forth what is good and right and true and find out what pleases the Lord. The, the phrase, that phrase in the Greek means to scrutinize, to determine genuineness. Paul's telling us, you, you came from the darkened dianoia. Remember, you, you came from the broken mindset. So don't let, let empty words sweet talk you back into the deeds of darkness. Don't let someone sell you almost Christianity. Scrutinize to determine if it's genuine, if it lines up with the whole counsel of Scripture and the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. Test what you hear. Don't just blindly follow what sounds good because the world is full of good-sounding lies. And this goes for us here, too. You come here every week to hear God's word. That's great. That doesn't absolve you of responsibility to check up on us. Scrutinize to determine if it's genuine. Verse 11, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. We're going to take a minute on this sentence because I think it can be really easy to misinterpret. This is not a command to go around sneaking up on sinners and busting them in the act. That's not going to win anybody for Jesus. People might call you a tool of the gospel, but in the words of Inigo Montoya, I don't think it means what you think it means. <laughs> We're not God's sin militia. We, the, 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 the object of reproof here are the deeds of darkness, not the people doing them. This, this clause is attached to that preceding command to live as children of light. So this command means to live lives so full of goodness, righteousness, and truthfulness that, that by contrast evil might be exposed to be purely evil. It's exposure by contrast. This isn't a command to be the bullhorn guy downtown. This is exposure by contrast. In the light of our lives lived by Christ, the deeds of darkness may be exposed to be inferior by comparison. One of the most difficult parts of my journey with God was when I came to a point where my Behavior was so drastically different from that of my oldest friends that it became really uncomfortable for us to connect as we once did. This, the first time that I remember this happening, we were up at my grandparents' cottage in Ohio, and 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 is our senior year in high school. I just become a Christian a couple months earlier, and my friends had gone and picked up some beer to have that evening. And I remember as I was uh, turning down a can of Miller Genuine Draft, my my Joe, my friend Joe said. Are you feeling okay? Is everything okay? And everything in me wanted to say, no, I'm just not feeling very well. Because I realized in that instant just how uncomfortable it was about to get if I shared with them the real reason that I wasn't drinking. I mean, we had just been having beers a, like a couple months earlier. They, they were my oldest friends. They knew me before I knew Jesus. They knew all the things that I had done. And, 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 and it was incredibly uncomfortable. There was serious discomfort for both of us, for them, or for me, because I felt like a fraud. I felt like I didn't have the right to pretend like I'd changed when they had a, a decade of evidence to the contrary. And it was uncomfortable for them because they, they felt judged, and not because I was judging them, and not because I was trying to hold them to a standard that they did not yet profess, but just because I was abstaining from something that they were partaking in, they felt judged by contrast, not by accusation. It's not nearly as uncomfortable to be the bullhorn guy. It's not nearly as uncomfortable to sneak up on sinners and catch them in the act because, because that doesn't require any vulnerability on our parts. 
If you're, if you're really nailing this command to expose the deeds of darkness, then you should be uncomfortable because exposure by contrast requires that we too are exposed. If you're doing this right, you're living shoulder to shoulder with people who don't yet know Jesus and they see the parts of you that represent him least. But we willingly submit to this scrutiny in the hopes that the parts of us that represent him best will be enough for the Holy Spirit to work with. Verse 13. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. Did you catch that last part? Because this, again, the language gets kind of flowery, but, but that last part, everything exposed becomes a light. This is a call to evangelism, y'all. Just channeled my inner Zach there. This is, this, is a call, this is a call to evangelism. We don't expose the deeds of darkness to, to shame those in darkness, but to, but to free them because God wants every single one of us. And we live as children of light in a manner worthy of our calling. We become a beacon of hope to guide people back who are still stumbling in darkness. And, and, and there's an opportunity there because they too, this is what this passage is saying, they too, their, their darkness can be transformed into light and they can become lights themselves. This is incredible. But not unless they see it. Not unless they understand that the darkness exists and that there's a different choice. If you think you're loving people by not bothering them with, with what Jesus has done in your life, I beg you to reconsider. You may be robbing them of an opportunity to wake up, to see that there's more to live for than the stuff they're killing themselves for that's actually killing them. If you believe in Jesus, the most loving thing that you can do is disrupt the comfortable life of someone who doesn't yet know him. And the meanest thing you can do is to leave them in their comfortable darkness. We live as children of light, not only to work out our own salvation, but to be a light by which others may begin to see reality as it truly is. And then perhaps in that knowledge, wake up from their death like sleep and become a light themselves. Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Verse 15, we're, we're walking into that third part, walking in wisdom. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish but understand what the Lord's will is. The literal rendering of this first sentence is watch how you walk. It's very reminiscent of the very beginning of chapter five, walk in the way of love. Paul instructs us to make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. And the word days here is, is a term that suggests an evil time or an evil age, not just the years of your life. So he's, he's talking specifically about the period of time between the first coming of Christ and the Perugia, the return of the king. He's, he's, he's saying that the opportunity is within this period of time between when Christ came and that day when we will all have to stand before him and give an account of our loyalties and there will be no more time to change them. He's saying we have an opportunity in this time by the way we live to woo every wayward soul near Jesus. 
Wisdom here is characterized by someone who makes disciplined use of their time because they know it's running out. Verse 17, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. According to Proverbs, the way of wisdom requires not only knowledge, though that is included, but then an ethical response to the knowledge. Wisdom then required not only knowing the Lord's will, but also following it. It's knowledge applied. And this is great news for everybody who feels like, uh, like I do sometimes, where you just don't understand everything that scripture says and instructs us to do. And it's a gut check for people who understand a great deal of it. Because by, these, by this description, it stands to reason that someone can know everything there is to know about Scripture and God's will, and if they do none of it, they are a fool compared to the person who understands only one verse and obeys it. Paul is saying, don't waste your time on vanity and trivialities and worthless side issues. Understand what the Lord's will is and then do it because time is running out. I want to say just a, a couple of words about understanding the Lord's will because I think um, this is a place that I got stuck for a while and I think maybe other people do too. We live in a, in a very individu individualistic culture in the West. And so when we hear phrases like the Lord's will, I think that we can imagine that this applies specifically to us only and that it's God's secret will for our lives, his personal will for us that, that's hard to find out. And in order to know it, we have to like be super holy and pray in just the right way. And we have to climb a tree and eat a sausage and then we'll know what God's will is for us. And that's just not, that's not true. A God who makes so much of the least of these would not withhold his will from people just because they don't have a high IQ or they're not super holy. It's not true. He wants us to know his will. God doesn't hold us responsible to know some secret divine will that we have no way of accessing because we're not holy enough or smart enough. If you want to know God's will for you, read the Bible. He's not hiding it in there. He's not up there twisting his mustache. He has a mustache. He's not up there twisting his mustache and saying, well, Shannon, you know, I was going to introduce you to your husband tonight, but since you didn't pray long enough to know my will to stop at 7-Eleven, you're going to die alone, a poor frumpy seamstress in Orlando. That's not that's not God, you know? That's not his character. He wants us to know his will for our lives. He wants us to know it more than we want to know it. And scripture is like his, his manual for, for what he wants from us. And it comes through so clearly in Ephesians. His will for us is to be unified through mutual love and forbearance so that we can live lives that are so attractive to the outside world that they want to know the God we live that way for. His will is for us to fight for each other by the way we live. When I was deciding whether or not I was going to marry Rob, I kept asking God if this was the right decision for me. And don't mistake me, I think you should ask God those questions. But, but keep in mind that if this is a, this is a truly non-moral decision, there's no right or wrong according to God's will, but according to the scriptures, but if this is a truly non-moral decision, then he may not have an angel deliver the answer to you. He may just want you to choose. And God knows me. He, he knows that I'm good at taking orders. If he would reveal his will with perfect clarity, he knows, he knows I'll at least make an attempt to carry it out. He knows that my problem is not execution. My problem is faith. And so when I ask for perfect clarity in this matter, perfect clarity as to whether or not I should spend the rest of my life with this person, I want that clarity as a kind of insurance that God's going to give me what I need. 
so that when times get tough, I can look back on that yes, and I can know that God's going to give me what I need, or if times get so tough that my marriage fails, that I can look back on that yes and know it's not my fault. Because this was God's will, not mine, so you know it must be his fault, not mine. I asked that question more times than I can count, but I heard no yes or no from the heavens. What, what I did hear, both in my spirit and I found it confirmed in the scriptures, was this question, do you trust me? Do you trust me enough to give you what you need? Do you trust me enough to give you what you need no matter the circumstances, no matter which path you choose? How have I done with your intentionally wrong decisions so far that you wouldn't trust me in an occasion where you're doing everything you, uh, you can to be faithful? Do you trust me? So the challenge I faced was, was having enough faith in God to provide for my needs without the perfect clarity of what those needs would eventually be. God knew that clarity would be of little use to me if, if my faith did not grow. I'm not saying God never speaks to us in the specifics. I think he does. But I think more often than not, when we're begging to know his will for our lives, it's possible that sometimes he might have already told us as much as we need to know. God gives us a compass, not a roadmap. And if we keep it in tune, then perhaps it's, it's actually better if we don't know all of the twists and turns that we will encounter along the way. Because if we did, we might never take any steps forward. Verse 18, we're, we're in that last section now, walking in the spirit. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The comparison between drunkenness and being filled with the Spirit, I think, is a really practical one. I love what Tim Keller says about this. He says, we get drunk to become less aware of our problems, but when we're filled with the Spirit, we become more aware of our resources. Being filled with the Spirit is an imperative here. It's a command. And, and, and being filled is the work that we do of surrendering to the Spirit of God within us. Uh, and then what follows is a description of what that will, like, what that will look like when played out in our relationship. So, so being filled with the Spirit doesn't mean faking happiness in times of difficulty. It means understanding the truth and the hope of Jesus enough and allowing it to penetrate your heart in such a way that you don't begin to imagine the difficulty is permanent. It's making room to feel what he feels, to be grieved by what grieves him. It's living in the pain of a world still subject to sin, but living with the joy that that subjection will end with an eternity of freedom to follow and, and, and freedom that can be tasted even here on earth. It's remembering the future and allowing that to comfort us in the present. So much so that we can't help but sing and make music in our hearts to the Lord that has come to our rescue. Then in verses 19 through 21, he gives us the measuring stick. This is what it will look like, a picture of what being filled with the Spirit looks like in your relationships. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. And for those of you who can't carry a tune... I checked on this. Moses' song in Deuteronomy 30 is by all accounts antiphonal. He doesn't sing it, so you can still make music to your heart, to, to your heart in the Lord. Uh, the other way. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as an aside, 
um, to people who are going through, through some difficult things right now. If you're alone, can't find a job, you're worried about your health. I just want to say that, that I'm not telling you to pretend. That's not what being filled with the Spirit means. When Paul says, for everything, give thanks for everything, the language here doesn't suggest that we give thanks to God for evil itself. And that was a comfort to me because I can't bring myself to give thanks for some things. I can't bring myself to give thanks for the, the death of a beloved child or for rape or for shootings. I can't bring myself to give thanks to God for the, the drugs that took my brother's life. He's not asking us to pretend. God doesn't ask that of us. I think what Paul is suggesting here is that, is that when we surrender to the Spirit, when we allow the hope and the truth of the gospel to penetrate our hearts, that we, we won't be able to help but praise God, certainly when our cup runs over, but even when it's empty, that we will still praise God for who God is. A loving, gracious Father who never rests from his initiatives to make good of all the evil that we have made of the world. We can't praise him for the evil that he himself hates, but we can praise him in the midst of it because we know the joy that is to come. Verse 21, and submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, so we conclude here in these exhortations that again deal primarily with our relationships. There's a communal nature to them. And in the, in, in the verses that are coming uh, that you'll hear over the next couple of weeks, we'll see what, what this mutually loving, mutual submission looks like in practice in certain types of relationships, husbands and wives, children and parents, etc. And uh, so, so where we're left here is with this summary description. Spirit-filled people will be at unity with one another by their love, thanksgiving, and mutual submission, and they will be at peace with God, who they worship in all circumstances, both corporately and individually, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Such people will live lives that are an invitation, a cool drink of water, a respite, a hope for those God misses most. We love God, and we love each other. That is how we walk in wisdom. That is how we walk in love. That is how we walk in a, in a manner worthy of the calling we have received. So let's make the most of our walk together. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you again for this morning and, and for the incredible sacrifice that you made for each and every one of us. The grace that you poured out by, by calling us while we were still sinners giving your life for us well, when, when we hadn't yet chosen you, when we didn't deserve it. Not that we deserve it now, but Lord, it's so much more incredible because we stood as your mockers and still you died for us. Lord, I pray that this grace would, would, would sink its way into our hearts this morning, that we would know that we are called by you and equipped by your spirit to live lives that will woo those who are still lost back to you, Lord, that you have made us your plan A. I pray for everyone in here who, who has walked a long pace away from where you've called them to be and feels the, the tugging of the Holy Spirit on their heart to, to, to begin to put those things off and to put on the new self, the person, the identity they've, they have in you. Would you help us to know that we have never fallen so far from your grace that you will not still scoop us up? 
And Lord, for the people who, who just aren't sure, who think maybe they've embraced you, maybe they haven't, they don't know, Lord, I pray that you would give them the strength to, 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 to be sure, to gain an assurance of their salvation by welcoming you into their hearts, even if it's just for conviction of sin that's already there, even if they're already in your inheritance, in your kingdom, Lord, would you give us the strength, the will, the character to be able to embrace you even when we feel awkward about it. And Lord, for everyone in here who's experiencing a difficult season of life, who's scared and who isn't sure when it's going to end, Lord, would you comfort us? Would you be the counselor and the comforter? Would you allow us to have hope that even even in this season of trial, we can still praise you because you are in fact at work in this moment to free us from the pain that we are experiencing. Lord Jesus, give us everything we need to know how to take steps toward you today. And we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope. Amen.